Hi, my name is Emily White, host, author, and creator of the How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast. I'm so proud that today's episode is sponsored by SongTrust, the world's largest and most accessible music publishing administrator. Before I share some more info from SongTrust, I just want to say that this is a genuine partnership, which is something that I encourage in all sponsorships and partnerships. I've been evangelizing SongTrust for years just on my own. Um, as any company that's in this book or in this podcast is because I believe in them and think that they're awesome and doing right by artists. After years of evangelizing, I've built a relationship with SongTrust, and this is the first time there's ever been an official partnership. So I just wanted to say that it's very pure. It's very genuine. Um, I do encourage you to sign up now for SongTrust to join over 300,000 songwriters and collect on your publishing royalties from more than 215 countries and territories. Use the promo code SUSTAIN20, that's all caps, S-U-S-T-A-I-N-2-0, at sign up for 20% off of your SongTrust registration. I'll say this throughout the podcast, and I say it throughout the book. I've said it before on my social media. I'm sure I'll say it again. Many songwriters know that they need to sign up for a PRO, a performing rights organization, which is ASCAP or BMI, for example, in the U.S. So some songwriters don't know this, and your PRO is not something to fear, because just recently I heard from some students and artists who hadn't signed up for a performing rights organization. There's nothing scary or bad about a PRO. It's just to collect on your performance royalties on your behalf for you to give you money for your songwriting. But so many songwriters feel that once they are signed up with their PRO that they feel like, oh, I've collected on my publishing. I'm good to go. I'm done. That is not the case. And that is the number one missing revenue stream that I see in general across the board is artists not fully collecting on their music publishing. And Song Trust is exactly how you do that. They're the best at what they do. I've thought that for years uh, before we started working together in, in this way. And I know the principals that founded it who are brilliant. Molly Newman, who is incredible, who runs it, and they have an amazing team. I personally have plenty of songwriters and artists that I work with uh, that have signed up for, that I have encouraged to sign up for Song Trust, and they've been happy to get that money. Um, so I, I really want to encourage you to sign up and I'll continue to explain what Song Trust is, what music publishing is, and that signing up for a PRO alone is, is not enough. And of course, sign up for your PRO first, because like I said, I was so surprised to connect with some artists recently, um, some artists slash songwriters who had not signed up for their, their PRO. I'll keep reminding that throughout the podcast, uh, throughout social, my social media, and of course, it's in the book for reference. Hello, welcome to How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, Emily White. I just wanted to check in for a moment uh, before we get into the Kevin Lyman interview because we've covered two episodes of Your Live Strategy and Efficient Touring, which is chapter eight in the book. As you may have heard, some of these episodes were recorded in late 2020. I don't know if I shared this, but um, and it, it's not going to matter in the long run, in the long run, right? If you're listening to this way in the future, but um, I initially planned on releasing this podcast in January 2021, um, and I came down with appendicitis, and I was out of work for three months. So um, that's why, you know, 
some of those are a little bit delayed, but I mostly just wanted, so I wanted to clarify that, but also check in and just reiterate a few things that were touched on. Uh, in particular, I think we we hit on quite a few of these in the episode with Akeen from CAA. Um, but again, just to hammer home a few things that are in the book that I feel like um, are really fundamental um, for your live strategy and efficient touring. Um, and then also, you know, just touching on, you know, clearly when I interviewed Mary Kay in the previous episode and Akeen in the episode before that, um, that was smack in the middle of the pandemic. Now um, the vaccine is widely available, at least in the United States. At the same time, you know, listening to those episodes, that information is still completely relevant, both the, you know, in-person live touring information, as well as the, the webcasting information. So it's, it's amazing how that hasn't really changed. Um, yeah, I, you know, just please get vaccinated because, you know, this Delta variant is is breaking through and, and getting vaccinated people sick. And that's not to freak anyone out. You know, you're not going to most likely you're not going. It's not funny, but you're not going to be hospitalized. You're not going to die uh, if you get vaccinated. But I'm, I'm mentioning this because it is it's going to cause a problem for in-person shows and uh, the live and, and touring industry, which was something, you know, shows shutting down with COVID was so personally heartbreaking, you know, to all of us that that's how we, you know, I've said this from day one, you know, when I would talk to people in the industry and they'd be like, oh, when, when's this going to stop as far as the pandemic? I'm like, or when will live shows return? I'm like, read the vaccine news. You know, I would read the vaccine development information, like the New York times would come out with a nice piece once every few months. And, um, but that's, that's neither here nor there, here nor there. Um, it's, you know, it's people who are choosing to not be vaccinated are, are, are going to mess a lot of things up for all of us in very serious ways, but also really mess up, um, shows fully returning and, and full force. So that's my PSA to please get vaccinated. Please, um, you know, encourage anyone who isn't getting vaccinated to do so, because like I said, it's, um, it's really messing things up as far as getting thing, you know, getting back to quote normal. And um, it's also killing unvaccinated people as, you know, an even stronger version of the virus continues to, to circulate. So I don't mean to be a bummer, but you know, we are, I, you know, I'm, I'm literally uh, recording this intro the day before we distribute the, Kev, you know, the Kevin interview you're about to interview. So I just kind of wanted to touch on where we're at, which is not quite where we were at when I talked to Akeen and Mary Kay, um, which was really um, in the in the midst of the pandemic before um, at least Americans had free access uh, to the vaccine. So please do that. Um, again, just want to touch on a few things. Uh, I don't know if we really talked about practice makes perfect. Um, I'm sure we talked about that. And I know we talked about it at the beginning of this podcast as far as when you are ripe and ready to record. But I was really fortunate at an internship um, in London at VH1, um, when my boss, uh, took me to an interview with Michael Stipe from REM. And one of my takeaways from that interview was, and I, I may have talked about this story before, but it's definitely important for, for this chapter. This was right when the strokes were breaking, which was even like pre-internet kind of, or very early message board internet. And, 
you know, Michael was saying that he, he, he felt bad for them in a way because, you know, he's like, look, REM was allowed to tour in bars and play to no one for a long time. And that's what made us gel as a band and a live unit. Um, so yeah, it's really important to practice. I, I feel like I've talked about this maybe before, or I'm just thinking of panels, but there are stories of, you know, industry folks signing up to work with an artist. I mean, it really must have been a feeding frenzy for uh, industry people to have not seen an act live. But my point is there are stories of, you know, industry people agreeing to work with an artist and then seeing them live and realizing that their live show is not where their recordings are at. So practice makes perfect. You know, you can uh, set, you know, play under a pseudonym at open mics or play, play as yourself at open mics. I, I only mentioned the pseudonym thing. If you're building towards, you know, a release show, we talked about the importance of radius cla clauses with a keen, you know, uh, when you book that, you know, album release, single release, whatever release you don't want to be, you know, you also don't want to have a residency booked and be sitting in with everyone all around town. So, um, yeah, just practice makes perfect. Uh, just wanted to remind on that. And, you know, Akeen and I talked about basically how to book a show. Uh, I can get into, you know, the nuts and bolts of that a little bit more. Um, I, I'm sure I mentioned I used to tour manage. So this, this was my life. Well, not booking a shows, but, um, you know, live shows was uh, really my life professionally for a long time. So, you know, when you approach, with you, okay, so when you're putting together like a hometown album release, CD release show, you know, you want to reach out to a venue that you realistically can draw in. Not like, I think I could do that, or I want to do that, because um, it's really hard to get people, you know, off the couch, out the door, and, and standing for a few hours. So, you know, once you have, you've identified that or you've put together a package with another artist or two and you know that these other artists are going to be your, like you've talked to them about this, they're going to be your partners on this show, they're not going to play a show, you know, a few months before, a few months after, maybe that's a little extreme, but maybe not, right? And they're going to hustle and they're going to be posting and they're going to, you know, reach out to their email list, get friends, family, everyone to come and turn out. So, once you once you've identified that venue or and or the package that you want to pitch, um, reach out to the venue slash promoter. Maybe I should define that really quick. Maybe that's too in the weeds. Um, so there's venues, right? And I would say more often than not, especially at the club level and down, um, it's going to have an in-house promoter. But sometimes there's bigger promoters that uh, will book and produce the shows at multiple venues. So sometimes it's an outside promoter, um, but more often than not, you're going to be dealing with, you know, in-house, an in-house promoter. So reach out to the promoter slash venue as far in advance as possible. And, you know, coming out, hopefully, of COVID, um, like shows are getting booked even farther out in advance than they were before the pandemic and they were getting booked really far out before the pandemic. So as early as possible. Um, so identify, you know, a night or two or three nights. I mean, you most likely just want to play one night um, unless you're doing like a teeny tiny room and you feel like you can do, you know, a, a couple shows, but one step at a time. So reach out, be like, I, I, I want to, you know, I have 
Okay. So you want to send a short and to the point email to the promoter, um, who you are, what you can draw, maybe a couple of press links, maybe your touring history, not your life story. Um, you know, maybe run it by someone in business. It doesn't even have to be a music business person. Cause I can look at, you know, an email pitch from an artist or an intern or whatever. And without even reading it, I'm like, that's too long, too long. Didn't read. So yeah, short and to the point. And again, the point is for your email to get read, not for them to hear your life story. So schedule that email to, you know, arrive like midday on a non-holiday Monday, if you can't send it then, um, and let them know the target dates you have in mind. And if the promoter is into it, they are going to come back to you and tell you, you are the, I'm just making, making up the numbers, but fourth hold for one of the dates, fifth hold for one of the dates, third hold for one of the dates. And if you want to go for it, you need to let them know that you want a challenge for one of the dates. And they are going to send you an offer for that show. Um, and then you can accept it, tweak it. Most of this stuff is pretty standard, although I just booked a show um, for someone I, someone I don't manage because managers technically aren't supposed to book shows, but that's not something we need to get into in this episode, or, or maybe I will. But um yeah, so the deals are the the deals are usually pretty straightforward because the costs to run the room can be the same. But um, this show, I just um, this show that I uh, am putting together, at least on like the business end for someone, um, had like a three hundred dollar catering budget, and and it's a hometown show for the artists. And I'm like, no, you don't need that. You can eat at home, or you can bring some food, or whatever. And and he agreed. Um, and so that was a way. That was an easy way to reduce expenses, and the promoter agreed. And so once you agree to the terms, um, then the promoter is going to go back, say your third hold, they're going to go back to the second hold and the first hold. And a lot of times agents are holding like a week or two weeks of dates. Um, And then so the promoter is going to be like, okay, so-and-so is challenging for whatever date. And then that agent has, you know, 48 hours or 72 business hours or whatever to decide if they want to move forward because their first hold or if they can let that date go because they're holding like a week of other dates in that room and and that's what's going to work better for their routing. And then and then once that's agreed upon, um, or you know, what once you quote win the challenge, then um the promoter is going to discuss, you know, when announcing makes sense. A lot of times venues announce all their shows on a certain day. I'm just making this up, but you know, say on Tuesdays shows get announced and then Fridays they go on sale. Um, so you're kind of plugged into that, into that system. Now, then it is very much on you to do the things that you said you would do, uh, and promote that show. So, you know, do so by, um, you know, getting it out to your email list, your Patreon, your text message club, um, you know, push out social media announcements, always tag the venue. You know, we talked about how that can help with retweets and sharing and adding the stories and stuff. Um, And yeah. Oh, and then also the promoter is going to see that. And so many, I I don't mean this to sound as crappy as it does. I'll I'll say artists and teams. So many artists and teams don't do any promotion or, or maybe they are doing promotion, but they don't tag the promoter and venue, but you're going to stand out if you do, because the promoter is going to be like, yeah, oh my gosh, this artist is definitely trying, right? Um, So look, like I consider all of these relationships to be partnerships, even though the word promote is in 
the job title of promoter. Um, it's it's on both of you, you know, to to work as hard as you can to to sell as many tickets. So um, another thing you can do that I don't think um, I know we didn't touch on in the two previous interviews was. Um, asking the promoter if they have a press list that they would be open to sharing. And if not, because some, sometimes, you know, they want to keep that information internal, which I totally get. Um, then you you could offer to draft a press release that they could service to local press contacts. And I have a lot of information in the book on how to write a press release, a, you know, pretty simple one page PDF with your latest and greatest highlights, um, you know, information on the show and, and you know, what you're promoting, if it's an album release or, or single release. Um, also, you know, if you do send out a press release uh, in the body of the email, um, offer guest lists, you know, to journalists who want to come out to the show, cover the show, just being proactive on that stuff can, can really make a difference. Um, we talked with Akeen about, you know, how to entice your fans um, on how to push your show for you. So if you want to go back two episodes and, and check that out, we definitely detailed that. Um, you can launch a street team. Um, you know, if, if physical posters or even, even a digital street team works, like if you can get fans to post around the internet, post around town and they can, you know, send you screenshots and and pictures of your work, um, you know, you can put them on the guest list. I mean, obviously you want to agree to that in advance. So they know, they know what's going on. Um, we're going to talk about merchandise. When do we talk about merchandise in the next episode with Julia Nunes? Um, but just to touch on it briefly, because it's, it's such a crucial component, you know, revenue wise, as far as live shows go, um, you know, get get your merch plan together, right? Like you've heard stories on this podcast of, you know, and you'll hear some um, from Julia of, of artists who crush it on merch, seeing artists that they love who have no merch and just what a missed opportunity that is. Um, so again, we'll talk more about you know, how you can make merch cheaply and creatively in the next episode. But yeah, just have a plan. And then also, you know, be nimble, find solutions. Like if if your vinyl isn't ready yet um, for your album release show, let people pre-order the vinyl at the show and take down their shipping address, um, their email address, uh, their phone number in case, you know, um, if that's handwritten, if you can't read it or someone typed something in wrong, if it's if it's on a tablet. Um, but yeah, that, I think I talked about that in the beginning of this book when I was tour managing Zoe Keating, um, she was, well, the tour was Zoe and Imogen Heap and Zoe was blowing through CDs, which is a great problem to have as, as an opener. And she was stressed out about that, um, cause she didn't have any left and the CDs were at home with her husband. And so I was like, oh, we'll just have people buy the CD and then Jeff can ship it out. So um, you can do that too if uh, you run out of something or, you know, vinyl, for example, is, is not ready. Um, again, we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but definitely have a credit card reader. Square readers are, are really to get. You're going to exponentially increase your merch sales. And um, that will also be the case that you will grow your merch sales if you hang out at the merch table um, afterwards and, and meet your fans and also encourage them. Be like, Hey, I'm going to be hanging out over there. Come say hi. Very easy. And when people are mulling around the merch table, again, I, I don't want to get too into the merch stuff. Cause that's, we got a whole episode, uh, you know, next week for you on that, but you know, you can just say, Hey, do you want to sign up for my email list or my text message club? And that's a, um, engaging thing to do. And, and you get something awesome out of it. 
Um, we definitely talked about regional touring uh, with Akeen, setting up gig swaps. Um, I we we touched on this a little bit, but just to highlight, um, you know, let metrics guide the way. Uh, I've certainly had plenty of artists that are trending in cities or countries we would never know about without looking at their social media metrics, their Spotify metrics, our email list metrics. Um, yeah, I, I had an artist who was based in Nashville, would do really well in London, New York, you know, some pretty classic major markets, but I noticed Sao Paulo was amazing. So, um, he went and did a, a really successful Brazilian tour and I, and I've told this story so many times, but, um, so I can't, so forgive me if, if I did on this podcast, but, um, yeah, so Imogen Heap, Imogen Heap's former manager noticed that Jakarta was the number one country on her Facebook insights. And that's obviously a city. So like she had so, so many fans in this city, it was, it was like overpowering countries on the insight list. And so the manager went to the her booking agent and said, hey, can you check out what's going on in Indonesia? And the agent's like, oh, there's no music industry there. Don't bother. And the manager's like, can you please check? And the agent came back with a bunch of huge offers. So um, yeah, instead of just booking, you know, where you think you're supposed to play, um, go to where your fans are. Um, you know, I have information on international touring in the book. Um, that's a minefield right now during COVID. I truly hate to say it, but um, yeah, so definitely check vaccine requirements before traveling internationally. Um, ask ask your concert promoter about um, visas, uh, pandemic or not. Um, ask about getting merch to them. They may want you to print there or ship in advance. Canada can be really tricky to get merch into. So almost every merch company I've worked with always wants to um, drop ship merch to Canada. Um, I remember being in line at a at the border at Canada once and I think we just had a small box of merch and tried to say it was like promotional and and the border guard didn't buy that so like you know 22 year old tour manager me was in this long line with all these truckers um showing that they had meat and I had like Dresden dolls undies um which I mentioned the Dresden dolls undies on the next episode as well so stay tuned for that otherwise well two last things um VIP packages um you don't necessarily have to be, you know, Beyonce level to be doing that. You could do a sound check party. You could offer food if the venue will let you do that, you know, or some sort of, or like a, um, a merch bundle, right? Like those are ways to um, increase revenue and, and have a higher ticket price, but also you don't want your ticket prices to be too high in general, right? Because you want people to show up. But yeah, get creative. Um, I worked with the Zach Brown band when... Uh, his first album came out and instead of me, so Zach, I, I was actually living and working in Miami and the best meal I had was when Zach cooked for us, like the, the staff, the music, the music industry team staff that was, that was helping him out. Um, and so he's obviously taken that like to the next level. So and I, I don't know if he still does this. He probably does. He should do this. Um, so instead of meet and greets, uh, you could have an eat and greet with Zach. And I know he's got a whole line of barbecue sauces and, and all this good stuff. And that was like the best meal I had, like top three meals I had when I lived in, in Miami. There was a couple of really good restaurants too. But anyway, um, yeah, other than that, just, you know, uh, make sure you're collecting email addresses and um, phone numbers at shows as well. Um, so 
you know, some artists are good about merch stuff and have a suitcase and have a setup, but your email list, text message club collection should be like part of your gear, right? You're not going to show up um, to your show without your musical gear. Um, Consider your merch to be part of that. Consider your data collection plan, your email list, text message club to be a part of that as well. So um, now I'm going to let Kevin Lyman take it away. Um, he is truly the GOAT, greatest of all time. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to get to know a lot of, quote, names in the music industry. Sometimes they can be uh, BS and just names. Kevin is not that. Kevin is so the real deal. Um, he has been such an incredible friend and mentor to me. Um, in particular over the past few years, uh, on our I Voted Festival. Um, he's a phenomenal educator at USC, the University of Southern California. Um, yeah, so bow down to the GOAT, founder of the Warp Tour. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let, let him take it away. And I, I don't know if I thanked um, my wonderful team in the previous episodes as well. So huge shout out to Matthew Wong um, for composing this music. I just saw what did he land composing wise? I'm sorry. I don't have that off the top of my head. Like it wasn't space jam, but it was something that huge. So Matthew Wong, you're amazing. Uh, Nathan Kane, thank you so much for your help engineering this. Nilu, thank you for your beautiful graphics. Um, and thank you all for listening. And if there's something that you feel I didn't cover on touring webcasting stuff, or in general on the music industry, this book, this podcast, hit me up on Twitter at emwizzle. but I will let the goat, Kevin Lyman, take it from here. So thanks again. And tune in next week when we do Merch Recon with artist Julia Nunes. Really appreciate it. Hello, welcome to How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, author Emily White. And today we're going to dig in uh, on chapter eight, your live strategy and efficient touring with truly the one and only Warp Tour founder, Kevin Lyman. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Emily. Absolutely. No problem. Yeah. It, it is an exciting time. Challenging, but exciting time in the business, I think. And uh, I think there's so, going to be so many different, um, it's going to be reinvented. Let's hope for potentially even a better way in the future. I think so too. And that's, I mean, I would have been thrilled to have you on anyway, but that's exactly why I wanted to have you on. Um, so you talked a little bit about this on my last podcast, Interning 101. So uh, I'm sorry to make your to ask you to repeat yourself, but I do want to um, do want to ask you about how you got started and your background and everything because I think it is really relevant to students and, and young people today who are going through this pandemic and figuring things out. So let's take us back at the beginning. How did you How did you get into music? Well, I really got into music. You know, I was going to in, in college. I, you know, I went to Cal Poly Pomona in Southern California. And it was during an exciting time in music uh, in Los Angeles, especially. For, um, there was a, a multitude of scenes going on. There was the new wave scene. There was the punk scene. There was the rock scene. And there was really no outlet out where we lived. Um, we were about an hour from Los Angeles. So I met some like-minded people. and We started going into shows in L.A. together. And at that same moment, I was walking across campus and heard some music in a distance. And I walked over and some people were setting up a, you know, setting up for a concert. And I said, you know, it was the concert committee, you know, and I've always said that, you know, the the education side for me was almost as a social social growth as much as educational growth when I was in school. 
Um, I was on the ski in the ski club and I needed to raise money for our ski team, which was a club team. And I started blending my love of music into bringing music to uh, shows out to the Inland Empire and promoting shows with my friends to raise money for our ski club and ski team. Uh, and then that group of people, strangely enough, it was an agricultural and engineering school. Uh, there was a love of music out there of some people. And those people grew into people like Paul Tolette, who started Coachella and Ron Coleman at SST records and Skip Page, who ended up becoming working closely with Paul Tolette. And when I got out of school, um, as many people, I, I still didn't quite know what I wanted to do. Uh, and I went over to Hawaii for a while and came back and some people said, Hey, there's a stage manager position at a club and you did really good putting on these shows at school and start building those relationships. And, you know, I stepped into this working in a club and soon, very shortly, we were co-promoting shows and Paul Tolette had gone to work for Gary Tover at Golden Voice. And I just started working shows pretty much every night of the year. I mean, it was working over 320 shows a year. I, I didn't discriminate about a certain type of music. I, I just went out there and felt that working everything possible at that point was important, you know. Also, not only to get the experience, but for my survival at that point financially. And uh, I built a production company and I worked, you know, that that way for about 13, 12 years and uh, was invited to be the stage manager of the first Lollapalooza it was exciting. And then in 1995, I, I was kind of thinking about maybe moving on and, and getting that real job that so many people are are thinking they need to get where you get a paycheck every week. And uh, I was having our first child and I thought I'd go out and do something uh, one last time, uh, basically. And that uh, was blending sports and music, which we'd been doing in Southern California, into something that we would go on the road with. And that was the Warp Tour, which was in 1995. And uh, during that period from 1995 to 2019, I was involved in many festivals and lifestyle branded festivals. I, I guess that's what I became a specialist in was blending lifestyles and music together and taking them on the road. So that turned into the Mayhem Festival, Taste of Chaos Tour, the Sprite Liquid Mix Tour, the Watcha Tour that focused on Latin music. So, you know, I was, uh, you know, navigating all those things and kind of drifted into a lot of branding projects and uh, finding myself now uh, over 40 years later, uh, still, you know, trying to, uh, stay a step ahead and figure out where we're going. And, uh, when the pandemic hit, um, I guess I was in a fortunate position. If you ever could say you were in a fortunate position, I had no large scale events going on for the first time in a quarter century. Uh, so I was able to sit there and try to figure out how to help people more navigate this than trying to survive myself. Absolutely. And again, I, you know, that ski club story, I always really resonates and, and stays with me because you were solving a problem, you know, it was like, okay, we need money, you know, let's put on shows. And then, like you said, you ended up blending music and lifestyle, you know, to this day. So I think that's just a huge reminder for people. It's not like, you know, you it's not like in college you had that, maybe you did, but it doesn't sound like it. You had this clear vision of like, okay, warp tour, this is what we're going to do. It, it, it came out of necessity, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, it's also listening. I think sometimes we get very narrow-minded and, and, you know, listening to society as a whole, the, the pulse of society. And my society was based in Southern California and music. And, but I was, we were blending things where we were doing philanthropic work uh, for 
um, AIDS charities through board aid and breast cancer awareness through boarding for breast cancer, where we would have snowboarding and skateboarding and music and listening to other people sometimes. And sometimes it's, is it eavesdropping or just absorbing? And really that would spark that warp tour was hearing backstage at, at one of these events that there was a thing called the X games, um, um, going to be started in 1995. And that message that we were living in Southern California was now going to be amplified on a national basis. And that's where I said, well, maybe the people who live this lifestyle should be running this versus working for someone else. So taking that opportunity and, and some people said, well, Kevin, you know, I had this idea of skateboarding music too. I go, it's sometimes acting on things. Um, you know, it wasn't a real complicated thing and warped evolved into something that was much more. And I think, you know, I, I talk in my branding class, the first day of branding class, I asked someone, every student to find three words that describe themselves. And um, my three words were always music, philanthropy, and education. And, Blending those into your business and your life uh, becomes natural. Um, and sometimes things are more forward. It was always music forward for me. And those other things would, would come into the wake of that. Now I've just kind of flipped it to education, philanthropy, and there's going to be a music basis to those. So through life. So that's where I instill in my students, like try to find three words that describe you. Now, those words could change over time or adapt. I don't think you, but it's great to at least build the basis with those words. Agreed. Definitely. Um, so that's amazing. I, I love that. And again, it's just a reminder that because uh, I, I think it's easy for kids to see Warp Tour or even I Voted and, and think that <laughs> there was a real vision there. But a lot of this stuff actually came out of necessity. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it evolved, you know, and that's where Warp, exactly. you know, with when Warp evolved, it was it was like I was always going to have those things, but it just kind of evolved. And, you know, and, and you hear now, you know, that it's now gone for now you know a lot of kids that was one place they it, it developed into a safe place for kids that maybe had alternative lifestyles and alternative visions based on and even though in certain locations it was accepted i mean in, in parts of the country that we went having even a piercing or green hair or a tattoo was not really acceptable in those communities right. and they were looked out as outcasts and we try to create a space for them at least once a day, year where they can come and enjoy themselves and and not be judged for who they were. I love that. I mean, I've really, uh, you know, my career, I, I pride myself on building businesses around artists and taking care of fans a very close second. And, and that's literally what you just described with taking care of your audience. That's yeah. for sure. And that's really what it was. I mean, what I did was realize, uh, you know, what I realized was we weren't a show for everyone. That's, you know, once, once, anytime I tried to make it accepted to everyone, I probably was, it wasn't going to be for everyone. My events are never really for, they're for a specific group of people that can find a, a, a common ground. And that, you know, that was uh, the, even Mayhem Festival, which was a metal community, but it was an accepting metal community. Uh, you know, Taste of Chaos with uh, the Winter Warp Tour style thing where when Emo, when we had My Chemical Romance and the Used and these things. So, you know, it's evolving. And then, you know, this pandemic hit and that was, you know, an interesting time because our whole industry, I was able to sit back more and listen and talk to people and then maybe start inspiring or talking to them about maybe solutions on how we can move forward as a business because we had become so dependent on, on the live touring aspect of our business, you know, yes. and then to have that pulled out 
that rug pulled out in March, uh, you know, everyone has a, a date, you know, was it March 13th, March 8th, March 20th, you know? Um, and I think the, the industry, I, for me, I was able to sit back and go, wait, we're, this is, could be a long-term thing. It's not something, I think the instant reaction was almost like a, a living in denial by our industry. Everyone was trying to reroute their tours for a few weeks later or three totally. weeks later or three oh, months sorry later. Sorry to interrupt, but for a few months, I yeah. feel like we were doing that. You know, it was, it was going on and, and, you know, understanding that the live aspect of the business was creating, you know, anywhere from 65 to 75, 80% of an artist overall revenue source. We became too dependent on one revenue source. And, and there's, it's no fault. It just kind of happened. It just, you know, you can't, you have to diversify your business and as a brand or an artist, this has allowed those managers that were so focused on just that touring, touring, touring to take back. And I know there's companies that I've been involved in with companies like Veeps and things like that, that were out there shopping themselves and shopping themselves and were able to pivot for this moment in time. They were a, a, a artist controlled VIP platform through an app, all of a sudden pivoted to live streaming uh, that Live streaming was looked as as a fringe of our industry. It wasn't really something people took too seriously, but all of a sudden, out of necessity, it became something that artists really embraced. And it's it's amazing how the artists that seriously embrace this have done pretty well during this period, or been able to at least figure out ways to substitute, you know, um, some of that lost income from touring. Uh, you know, you look at companies like Cameo, which was kind of a fringe business. Now artists are doing that. And I think these will all become part of a business plan for artists in the future. They're not going away. They're going to be here for some for they're going to be here as part of that. And a, and a smart managers going to ingrain this into their business models, um, as well as going back to that live event situation. Agreed. Um, and I definitely want to dig in on that. But a, a few more questions uh, about your background. Um, you know, maybe just, I, I know you know this as an educator, but, you know, maybe just remind folks, you know, the importance of kind of trying everything and, and saying yes to everything and throwing yourself into what you can. Because like you said, you're booking shows for the ski club, you, you became a stage manager. It's like you weren't, um, I mean, of course you were Kevin Lyman, but you weren't warped to her Kevin Lyman at, no. at that point. So, you know, maybe just a reminder of the importance of uh, learning each step along the way. Yeah, I think what happens is, you know, I, I talk to my students a lot of times and they have like a very specific job they want to do. Right. That's where they're going. They've already. And I'm like, this is when you should be trying everything. And that's what I kind of did. I, I learned enough about sound. I learned enough about lighting. I learned, you know, I started to really embrace in the whole concept of our business as a whole um, and realize that just go, you know, never say no. You can't say no. You can't think that that job, and I said, especially right now, I mean, this is a time where, you know, take any opportunity that's given to you. I, I sometimes tell people that if you're having a hard time breaking into the music business, start working for a wedding planner. That's the same right. work for a wedding planner, because you know what? Those are the same skill sets that you will bring into the live space when you get your foot through the door and brush up on all these things. If you need to learn, you know, if you if you're religious or have an affiliation with the church, go down and learn how to run the sound system. Get involved. Just every day you should be involved in some sort of planning because all this planning becomes somewhat interchangeable later on. Um, sometimes that planning becomes, you know, larger. Sometimes you're adding little elements, but the basis of there, that organization, that creating timelines, that's, that's hitting goals, you know, um, 
I always tell people in my classes, my students, I go, it's really hard to get a bad grade with me. The way you get a bad grade is if you don't turn things in on time. Right. Exactly. I, I love that. And, you know, I think you and I talked about this once uh, when I was speaking in one of your classes. Um, you know, well, first, you, you nailed it because that's what I was getting at. A lot of times young people are like, and I get it, like have your goals, but they're they're so, you know, narrow focus on that one job or that one thing. And I remember um, being on the Nine Inch Nails tour right when I graduated college, I was tour managing the Dresden Dolls who were opening. And one of Nine Inch Nails uh, lighting people said to me, we were having lunch or something. And he said, do you know why our production manager, Chris Roberts, is so good at his job? And I said, I don't know. And he said, because he's done all of our jobs before. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. So that's a huge reminder. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's just having, you don't have to be an expert in every one of them, but you have a knowledge of them and can respect the people that are doing them and that are experts in them, but you can actually have an educated discussion with them on a project, you know? Uh, you know, it was great to be able to understand rigging and understand those things. So if I'm talking to my rigger about specific points or weights, I at least can understand the broad concept of them. Yeah, and... um and also empathy, right? Yeah. You know, like if, if a crew member is having a, a problem with something they're doing, it's like you don't want to be totally clueless and upset or not upset. You want to help them solve the problem. Yeah. So we were, uh, you know, it's it's the time. But right now, I you know, I tell my the industry is changing. I think what ended up happening with our industry, it ended up, uh, you know, it became too one dimensional. It became one sided. I think everyone's been knocked off their high horse right now. No one in our business should be on their high horse right now. Um, I think we're people are realizing that we need to be, we're all dependent on each other and we should be equally recognized for that. Agreed. That, you know, um, um, I think what happened was, uh, you know, we were, we're, we're going to, it's, we're going to be this, the scrappy people are going to do just fine coming out of this. Um, it's been, the pain has there. I think our industry is also going to become a little bit more uh, tech focused. Um, you know, there's a lot of people been hanging on that maybe haven't had the skills. So I always say this business is going to be run by 40 year olds for a bunch of 20 year olds coming up and people that were nice will be kept around as uh, consultants for a few years. Totally. And yeah, the scrappiness, I mean, that is so true. And again, one last question about your background. I, yeah. you know, I think I recall you telling, it, well, obviously it wasn't always the Vans warp Tour. Um, yeah. So can you take us back to kind of having no money, but trying to pull this thing off and kind of rem reminding people that you were in that position once and not always who you are now? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's interesting when we look back at the successful festivals and, and things like, you know, most of the people who created a successful festival at first pretty much went close to bankrupt to get it off the ground. Uh, you know, I luckily, you know, I, it was self-financed at the beginning. Uh, we did have, uh, an agent that helped us, uh, CAA was my agency and they did help go sell the show the first time. Uh, but I all of a sudden quickly realized that, just making it on this and that we were all supporting corporate America in our own way. And I grew up in a world of F corporate America, uh, skateboarders, punk. So, but I said, you know what, we're spending money buying their products. Why can't they support the lifestyle we lead? And that lifestyle was the music that I love so much. You know, I always felt that a lot of the bands and everyone will maybe argue that their set of 
artist speaks to them in a certain way. I felt my artist had something to say and they needed to go out and have a bigger platform to do that. And if I could get some of this money, corporate money to help support this so I could bring more of them or uh, go to more places, that's what we did. We went out and Vans was a very fortuitous thing because you almost make branding mistakes at some point in your life. And at one point, my I was had someone and I was trying to hold it together that second year. Someone was saying that it would be the Calvin Klein Warp Tour would be a great project. And they knew someone like Calvin Klein. And uh, it's about timing. And I, I got that meeting with the Vans at that last minute. And it went really, really well. And uh, they became it became the Vans Warp Tour in 1996. And uh you find mentors in this business and, and mine, one of them would be Walter Schoenfeld, who was the, one of the original founders with uh, the Van Doren family of Vans. And uh, he, I think, believed in my vision and, and passion and, and gave me the chance to move forward with it. So um, I thank Walter for that. Well, speaking of mentors, you know, one thing that you've really reminded me this year that I've, I constantly keep in mind is, is the long game. Um, so any, you know, any thoughts on that for everyone who's, who's figuring this stuff out? You know, and that, that long game for me has always been how, you know, you want to be, you want to be doing this your whole life. I mean, you know, it's interesting. We talk about the music industry that, you know, you know, are you selling out if you do something well, you know, or are you figuring out how to do this? And I always said, you, you know, we were allowed to exist because we didn't take advantage of a scene or anything. And not taking advantage allows you to have a long game and do, do this for over 40 years. Um, I could have made a lot of more money if I was just in it for the money. I could have made a lot more money, uh, you know, charging the kids more for the tickets or getting kickbacks on ticketing fees and or just, you know, or being, you know, cutting out certain those developmental stages I had on Warp Tour. Those weren't there to uh, those weren't there to sell tickets. Um, you know, I had many, many things that were not there to sell tickets, but how do you build it? So people are there for the long term. Um, and it's probably a short example would be, you know, when blink 182 was probably our smallest band on the, on the, on the, on a bigger stage, I had a band that was selling 70,000 records a week demanding that they move to the main stage. And I said, no, I said, I understand if you have to leave my tour or feel, but I believe you need more songs than the one you have right now. And you know what? I can't move a band from the big stage to the small stage. That would just be unfair. And then I look back and go, well, if I had done that, that would have been Blink-182. And would they have been there in 1999 for me? We're one of the biggest bands in the the country, not the world. Would they have come back and worked with me? So making short-term decisions, you know, you have to weigh them against, okay, will I be here? And I think those decisions that you make allowed us to be here for 25 years. It's not easy sometimes, you know, especially when you're trying to, you know, you're trying to pay your bills and do things and, and maybe, but, but I do have to believe that those decisions allowed us to be here there as long as we, we were. Um, And, and it is hard, you know, you've got day-to-day things, but I've always tried to say like, wow. And then learning how to put yourself in other people's shoes. Um, I almost take every conversation now and put myself in their shoes. Does that make sense? Just okay, where are they coming from with this? Where, you know, where, what is their mindset on the, with this thing? I can't take it. I have my opinion. I have my mindset, but you know what? I want to get myself into their shoes just to kind of reverse the thing. So I know who I'm talking to. It's, it's, 
doesn't happen immediately, but the more you interact with people and things in life, you can start developing those skills. And the sooner you get started with that, you can start looking at that long game. Well, it's so important. And, um, you know, I, I had to fight for that actually. I voted quite a bit this year. I mean, obviously we, we had 500 artists, um, but I tried to treat every single one equally. Um, and that was, that was a battle with our team sometimes, but I had to point out that when we first did this in 2018, um, Billie Eilish and Maggie Rogers were I voted artists and nobody had ever heard of them. Um, so I'd like to think that, you know, we're treating all artists equally because it's the right thing to do, but I had to point that out, you know, for the long game reasons, uh, that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, it's treat everyone fairly and equally. Um, I know that that's sometimes not a term that we use in our business, but it's just a good thing to have in life. It really is, you know, no matter who you're dealing with, try to teach, treat them with the respect they deserve, you know? And, and I think we have learned that a lot during this pandemic time too. I think we've all been humbled in a way. Um, and, and those of us that learn are learning that we all intersect and interact, you know, um, treat the people at the, at the grow, those grocery stores, the people that are washing those carts out front all day long, give them the respect they deserve. It's the same thing. When you walk in a venue in the morning, give the parking attendant, give the backstage person, give, just give them the respect that they're doing their job. And every job is important. Agreed. Yeah. Every job is important. And again, to me, that's just good karma, but you know, I'm now reminded when we reached out to Billy's team, this Billy Eilish's team this year, um, you know, I saw that, uh, you know, this guy, Danny was the manager and he writes back and says, Oh, Emily, we've come so far from the hello goodbye tour, you know? Yeah, so it's like, cool. I worked with this guy a decade ago when I had a band opening for his band. I know we did a good job on the tour. And he said, yes, to I voted this year. So again, I, I don't, I know that's, that's why I didn't do a good job or was nice to him 10 years ago. But I mean, you know, this better than anyone. It all comes back around. Yeah. And you never know when it's good. And, you, and that's the thing in life. I think you, you can't expect it to come back around. Exactly. I, I think we got into it. You know, I remember people say, you know, it was always about doing someone a favor. I'll, I'll do a favor and they'll pay, you know, it was always, no, just do it because you want to do it. Exactly. Just do it because it's right. And yes. you never know. And it comes back around. And, and you know, I, I don't even know when it comes back around. And, and it's just a stupid thing about, you know, going to Hawaii. And I don't ever expect anything going back. Turns out the head of marketing for uh, the Four Seasons in Hawaii, we were, you know, he heard I was coming. And he's like, you fed me a lot of barbecue backstage. <laughs> you know? Amazing. And, and I didn't realize that he used to work for a band called Pepper. And uh, they're from Hawaii. And, you know, and, and I don't expect, you never expect it, but he like was so excited to have us that, you know, there was a round of golf and lunch for my wife and me. And it was, just, it wasn't like, and it wasn't like, it was just not expected. Not even, I didn't even know he had barbecue at my totally. but he says we had some great conversations and then we had a lovely time with his family over there and uh, just meeting them and talking to them. And you, you never know in life. And, and so many times, you know, things do come back and, and you never know and don't expect them. And then when you when it happens, you're really surprised. And it, and it really does mean you've made some sort of impact on people's lives in some way. That's right. So we're in the middle of the pandemic. Um, the live industry, you know, the traditional live industry is uh, hopefully just temporarily fallen apart. Um, where are we at? Where are we going? What, what, what do you think about everything that's happening and what's going to happen next? Well, I think it's going to be balanced. I think this live streaming of shows will be here. It'll be part of an artist development 
And also it allows certain artists to say, look, you know what? Maybe I don't have to go on. I could cut two to three weeks off the, of touring this year and spend a little time for myself or for my own mental health, because being on the road is tough. Maybe, yep. you know, you know, if you do it right, I mean, you know, without getting into it, I've seen some of the numbers on how artists are monetizing streaming and I go, wow, doing it right. That you, you can make enough income that you may be able to, to knock off a bit of that live travel and live touring. We're going to have to do that because one, sadly, we've lost so many venues uh, two, I think we're hitting an economic time. So artists that can do that. But I, and I also believe that we're going to be suffering a, 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 a form of PTSD in, a, in America where maybe 15 percent of the people won't be going back to live shows right away. Definitely. And they're going to want to digest their music in a certain way. So I think we're going to see more of a balance in these things like, you know, Cameo was looked at maybe as a little cheesy when it first came out. But you know what? That is like the new autograph or photo like doing something special for someone and getting them that personal greeting it artists who are doing that so i think there's going to be a, a new balance that that management companies will be spending more time on that branding side and alternative ways to bring in some revenue so maybe that that it doesn't go back to 65 70% 80% from touring it might be able to be more of a balanced portfolio because we have to look at and sadly we have to look at ourselves like mutual funds in a way that mm -hmm. You can't be a high-flying stock all the time. You've got to be kind of balance out your career so you can sustain it over the long term. And I think that's I think we I think this is going to open a lot of doors that way. Uh, I think you know it's interesting. You know I'm I'm going through you know it's, without going into detail like some of this. A lot of people are talking about TikTok right now and TikTok. Um, TikTok's super super hot right now because we're all locked up in our houses and looking for things to do. Does it become part of a career long term or is this a flash? Um, uh, you know, it'll be it'll be really interesting. And I think also this has given a lot of people a lot of times to go brush up on some serious skills. If you're in the live business, I know a lot of people who went out and learned vector works or got that cat learned CAD during this moment of time when they've had it um, and they're not running so fast. I also look at a lot of people maybe in an older demographic now that I can call my I call myself in an older demographic. Um, has have decided that they've found jobs that allow them to stay home and not go on the road. Right. They only knew the road for 20, 30 years, maybe 40 years. And now they've gotten home and they've, and they've realized they've been able to diversify their skills into maybe logistics officers for trucking companies at home or in warehouses and go, you know what? That road life was great, but now maybe I can ground myself for the, you know, and because being on the road at a certain age, um, it, it gets tougher and it's not as pretty as it used to be. And you've been everywhere before. Uh, so maybe I think we're going to see a, uh, a, a shift on, on people on, on who's going to be in the touring industry and in the live industry. I, I think tech forward's going to be uh, a lot of people maybe that didn't brush up on that tech may find themselves without the jobs because there are a lot of young, amazing people coming up in the world. Like I said, and those 20 year olds are going to be very hungry and going to help reshape this business. Agreed. And um, yeah, just, just one last question. Well, two questions, but one last question about this before we wrap up. Um, you know, it, it's been interesting. I've been seeing these webcasting companies pitch like some really traditional managers. And I actually don't mean traditional in a bad way. I mean, like guys who have made a lot of money on touring. And so when it's pointed out to them, like, oh, well, you can geofence off, you know, you can have a sold out show, but then you can sell more webcasting tickets. I, you know, I've heard some pushback on that, right? Because they're so used to making like 
their millions of dollars on tour and not really thinking about it. I'm not saying they're not creative, but you know, I was thinking about it further. When we did I Voted in 2018, we were in 37 states and obviously I wanted to be in all 50. So I tried to reverse engineer it and look for shows that were in those remaining 13 states and try to activate those shows. Well, there were like no shows in those 13 states. And I know like literally for like the entire month of November, maybe there would be one show. And I know these are very rural populations, but I I think about not only, you know, those fans and those people, but um, I was speaking in uh, a class in, uh, in Scott Laguerre's class in at Minnesota State Mankato, which I believe is a few hours from Minneapolis. And he said his, this, you know, this was right when the pandemic hit, but he said his students never go to shows. Or I think about, um, you know, Madison, Wisconsin being a good hour and a half from Milwaukee, probably a few hours from Chicago. I actually feel like, you know, we can geofence these shows and with webcasting create a very viable revenue stream and sell tickets to fans that literally can't get to shows in even, you know, tertiary, you know, secondary and, and tertiary cities. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, we are going to have to address one. The, you know, we're diversifying out where we're going to play because, we're, you know, some of those, I, I was looking at that um, list of venues that have closed. Yeah. And in my mind, it was like, okay, if those venues are doing four shows a week for 52 weeks a year, I mean, we've lost the ability to do about 10,000 shows. Yep. <laughs> I mean, next year in those traditional spots. Mm-hmm. So people are going to have to get really creative how they, they go play. Um, I, 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 when you refer to that thing that, you know, about webcasting your shows in a geofenced area and things like that, look, there's going to be, but, but the, that normal way of running over and getting a national tour offer of, from live nation is probably going to not quite be there for certain artists. Of course right. that, that A plus artist is going to have those options. There's still going to be that, but that everyday working artist, I mean, managers are going to have to work hard. Agents are going to have to work hard. They're not going to be able to just get on the, I always call it the El Chapo motorcycle and ride under, you know, somewhere up from Beverly Boulevard and pop up at live nation and grab a tour offer and ride back to their offices, you know, and say, here's our offer. They're going to have to go out there and get 40, 50 offers from unique and different places to try to play live again. Um, yeah, you know, sitting on the sidelines and I think, it, you know, people are just going to realize just like, it's going to go back to just everyone, you know, 99% of us are just going to have like that word scrappy keeps coming back is going to have to adjust and, and where maybe 70% of the, you know, 30% of the artists were able to just go get tour, you know, tour offers and 40% and get them off the desks of the agents. Uh, look, at, I know some, a lot of agents that are just not going to survive during this period because yeah. they got so comfortable doing it a certain way. Uh, you know, there, there's art, other agents that have already adapted and some agents created their own live stream for artists because I know the agencies were trying to figure out how to gain revenue from streaming, but a lot of the managers, well, no, you don't deserve money from that, you know? And, and instead of just saying, yes, I deserve money from that, some agents went out and started creating their own streaming services for their right. to be able to earn that money. And that's, that's that scrappy agency, you know? Um, the model is going to change. AEG is going to be different. Live Nation will not be exactly the company they were before. They'll still be here, but it's going to be a changed company. I think we're going to see a rise of some independence. Um, people who did not have great debt, did okay during this time. Right. Um, debt was easy to to secure 
pre-pandemic. There was a lot of money out there that people could take at, 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 at cheap, but that eventually that has to be paid back. Uh, and people who don't have debt probably are, are going to be in a pretty good position going forward, I think. Agreed. Um, just one last question. Uh, what, is building a, what does building a sustainable music career mean to you? Look beyond your fingertips. Okay. And that's what I say. So many of us can't figure out in this business how to see past our fingertips. And I always say, that's my fingertips. Put money in my palm of my hand right now. Look beyond that. Look how you're going to, like how you can turn something into things and sustain and don't do things. I know we all have to survive and people go, yeah, you're luxury, Kevin. You can, you can just say, oh, now you can say, oh, I can pick and choose and everything. But you know what? Just, just go never sit on the status quo. Always think how you can do it better or always think of how to challenge sometimes. Um, everything about my life has been kind of challenging the norms. Um, and there's times when there's times when I have to weigh it because every time I've done anything just for the money, it really has been let been a letdown or hasn't gone as well as possible. Um, um, maintain, live within your lifestyle. Um, you know, I always looked at, there was times, you know, there was, when I bought my first house, when I eventually earned enough money, we, they, the, everyone will say you qualify for something more, do something, take a step back and realize, I always tell people right now, look at your plate, what's on your plate and think how you're going to live till 2022 with what's on your plate. If you need to figure out little ways to go out and put more on your plate to survive, it's about surviving in this business. And right now we're, there's a balance between thriving and surviving. But never live beyond your means. Don't secure, don't be indebted. Don't fall in debt. Only live within your means. And that becomes a big thing. And, and that's really important. And I think don't compare yourself to other people. Um, sometimes I, I know I made that mistake at one point. I'm going, why is that person having all this success? And I'm working so hard, so hard, so hard. Don't compare yourself to other people. Just get in there each day and it is a working business. You work in this business. Um, and then eventually you get to a point, you know, I'll be 60 in a few months where sometimes you can say no and it's okay to say no. That's a wrap for this episode of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. Massive thanks to song Trust for sponsoring this episode. SongTrust is the world's largest technology solution for global music publishing royalty collection and, and administration. It was founded to simplify music rights management and re remove complexity from the publishing landscape. SongTrust collects publishing royalties for more than 2 million songs with a community of more than 300,000 songwriters and rights holders. Use the promo code SUSTAIN20, S-U-S-T-A-I-N-20, all in caps, at sign up for 20% off your song trust registration. And if you happen to miss the beginning of this episode where I shared my thoughts on song trust, um, I am very genuinely obsessed with them. Um, that is a love and a real endorsement I've had before we worked together uh, in sponsoring this episode or, or anything. And it really is the number one missing revenue stream that I see in songwriters and artists um, because so many artists sign up for their PRO, ASCAP or BMI um, here in the US, and then they think that they're collecting on their publishing. And I, I meet songwriters of all ages and 
experience levels who, uh, as soon as they sign up for Songcrest, there's money for them there. So I highly, highly recommend it. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks to my amazing engineer, Nathan Kane. Thank you to Matthew Wong for composing this beautiful podcast music. And again, thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Emily. And uh, hopefully we'll all have be remain safe and healthy. We just have to be patient. If you have questions or anything in the meantime, I'm at mwhistle on social media. Catch you then. Thanks.